You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Professor Konrad Pawłowski, the head of the Balkan team of the Institute of Central Europe. Political Periscope. In last weeks, we have observed uh, some movements, some protests, some clashes on the northern border of Kosovo. What happened? What was it all about? This is the continuation of the conflict uh, which has started in July last year. The conflict started with the attempt to change the uh, the car plates for Serbian citizens living in the north Kosovo. And not necessarily uh, Serbian citizens of Kosovo, but for the people who are still using the old illegal plates. And, and unfortunately, or maybe like maybe it was the plan for, for Kosovo government to change the plates it meant that one of the last remains of the Serbian statehood would be removed by the Kosovo authority. So the plates, old Serbian plates with the acronyms of Kosovo cities, it was the chief bone of contention in that part. So when the Kosovo government started to replace the, the car plates, uh, the Serbs reacted with the blockades of the roads in North Kosovo. This, this is a typical situation. This is a typical form of protest for the Serbian citizens of the North Kosovo. It should be stressed that uh, the four uh, municipalities of Kosovo, which we, and they are called the North Kosovo, uh, these are four municipalities, and the majority of the population of that part of Kosovo is Serbian. It's more than 90 three percent of population there these are ethnic serbs so this part of kosovo is ethnically serbian one and it is connected through the border with with serbia itself so this is like a super enclave connected with serbia and there are some elements of serbian statehood still visible there and the place was one of them so what we see today in the bigger picture of the situation in kosovo is the attempt of Kosovo government to finish this process of establishment Kosovo state in the north Kosovo and the opposition or the protest from the Serbian side uh, which wants to, to stop that, to keep this sort of status quo, to keep those elements of Serbian statehood and the, to keep the status of north Kosovo as it is today. So as a territory which is officially under the jurisdiction of Pristina government, but in reality it's still under the control of Serbian government, the government in Belgrade, and it's definitely politically controlled by the Serbian government, because Serbian government wants to keep the North Kosovo issue as the element of dialogue between Serbia and Kosovo. And uh, when we see the protest in uh, last December, it was the continuation of this conflict, which has started in July. So the conflict over the plates was eventually resolved by the parties, thanks to the mediation from the European Union and United States. But before that, we saw the constant deterioration of political situation and deterioration of these tensions in the North Kosovo. The constant 
systems of cost of government uh, who want to change the car plates uh, led to the decision of the Kosovo Serbs who were working at the Kosovo institutions to boycott those institutions. So they collectively left the institutions. And it took place in the beginning of November last year. And since there, there is so-called institutional gap in the North Kosovo because Serbs left those institutions. And although they are getting money from Serbia right now, from December they are getting money from Serbia, but for Kosovo it's a political and institutional crisis because it's kind of gap I mentioned that, and it's politically controversial because opposition in Pristina is very critical about the attempts of Mr. Kurti, the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Mr. Albin Kurti, who wanted to finally uh, impose all the regulations uh, of Kosovo state in the North Kosovo, but the opposition says that the Kurti's attempts were actually counterproductive because what he achieved by this so-called pressure is that Serbs left the institutions and they came back to the situation which took place before the first agreement or normalization which was signed in April 2013. So some people say that the drive for integration of the North Kosovo into the Kosovo political and institutional and legal system eventually led to the so-called losing of North Kosovo by the Kosovo government, which is maybe not precisely what is going on, but what we see today, this is this institutional gap. And the problem is that this gap meant the legal obligation for the Kosovo institution to replace the people who left institutions. I'm basically talking about the municipalities and the municipal institutions, so municipal assemblies. So after Serbs left the municipal institutions, assemblies, and the post of mayors of, of the four municipalities in Kosovo. So according to Kosovo law, it was a necessity to fill those positions and to organize the elections. And in the beginning, President of Kosovo, Vyosam Osmani, decided that those elections would take place in December last year, but it was technically impossible because Serbs physically blocked, in some cases they blocked the attempts to organize the these elections in December, uh, because in few cases they literally clashed with the Kosovo police and with the members of election commissions who came to the north municipalities with the idea to start this organization process. So after those clashes, one of those, let's say, perpetrators from the Kosovan perspective was arrested, the former police officer, because it should be stressed also police officers from the Kosovo police, they left the institutions in the north and majority of them, they were ethnic Serbs. So everything we are talking about the North Kosovo these days, it's it's about this institutional gap which was created by this mass living of Kosovo institutions by Kosovo Serbs or ethnic Serbs, which delegitimized the functioning of Kosovo institutions in the north. So this is political issue. So everything is going on is highly political. So the idea to create the elections for those assemblies in the north was blocked by the ethnic Serbs who decided that they would not participate in those elections. And after the arrest of the one of participants in that protest, Dejan Pantic, who was the former Kosovo police officer, he was arrested by the Kosovo police. Serbs organized the blockades 
which took place from the December 10 until the December 29, when Serbs decided to remove the roadblocks, remove the barricades. And of course, it was Belgrade's decision, officially taken after the discussion with Kosovo Serbs. But everything what's going on there in the north, on the Serbian side, is definitely organized and actually controlled and even steered by the government in Belgrade. It's, it's nothing spontaneous here. There is a part of Serbia which has a big uh, Kosovian, I, I would say even majority, Albanian or Kosovian ma majority, and there are a few municipalities, as you said, in Kosovo with uh, Serbian majority. So why just not make an exchange of territories? Yeah, I mean, uh, these are four municipalities in the north, which are bordering with the Serbia, but these are not the only one, because we are talking about 10 municipalities in Kosovo with Serbian majority, and this is the idea to create the association of Serbian municipalities in Kosovo. So this is also on the table. It was agreed in the 2013, but unfortunately, Kosovo government, especially Prime Minister Albin Kurti, is still against the creation of this association and the arguments from the Kosovo side and the Kurdish side would be that he's against the division of the multicultural Kosovo state and creation something similar to the Republic of Srpska, which is sort of political problem or issue in Bosnia-Herzegovina. But the idea of the change of borders or the correction of borders, it's not new and it's highly controversial for many reasons. I, I mentioned Bosnia and of course there is a threat that any changes of the borders between Serbia and Kosovo would create attempts in other parts of the Balkan region and maybe some other nations, ethnic minorities, they would follow the same pattern. And of course, the first and the most visible case is, of course, the Republic of Srpska and Bosnia-Herzegovina. But this idea about the exchange of territories was actually quite a serious thing during the Trump administration because Trump's administration was open for every possible solution so it was not officially excluded from the list of possible solutions of the dispute between Kosovo and Serbia. And from the Serbian perspective it was acceptable because in reality Serbs or Serbian authorities are very realistic about the situation in Kosovo but they are looking or they are searching the win-win solution and from the Serbian side it would be the exchange of territories and keep part of Kosovo, I mean the North Kosovo, with the ethnic majority, which is Serbian. Uh, so it would be a kind of not easy, but sort of win solution to show it to Serbian society as a kind of success. And uh, this idea of exchange of territories or division between Serbs and Albanians, and let me say that it was never clearly defined, neither by Belgrade nor Pristina. So this idea was supported by former Kosovo president Hashim Tachi. So it was a kind of deal between Alexander Vucic, president of Serbia, and Hashim Tachi, president of Kosovo. And it was supported by Trump administration. But it was still very general idea. And let me say that it was rejected by many European states, mainly Germany, because German administration was clearly against any changes of the state borders in the Balkan region. For that reason that it would start this secession movements in other parts of that region. So it was officially rejected and now it's not the main proposal for the solution of that conflict because we have a new proposal for the solution of that conflict which is called French-German plan for the normalization of the relation uh, between Kosovo and Serbia. So this is a plan and 
And of course, we don't know the details about this plan, but it's clearly visible that any exchange of territories is completely excluded. So for Serbia, it means kind of expectation from the European powers and America that Serbia would eventually recognize the borders and factual sovereignty of Kosovo, but without obligation to recognize Kosovo's statehood officially. So it's kind of de facto recognition of Kosovo's separation without clear definition that this is the recognition of Republic of Kosovo. But the devil in the detail, because even if the text of this agreement is quite general and uh, it's about acceptance and not recognition, so according to international law, there are some many arguments to say that this would be a kind of recognition and Serbia is afraid of that and because the Western countries were trying to get the acceptance from Serbia for Kosovo's membership at the United Nations and of course the first sight it does not seem to be a recognition of Kosovo but everybody knows that after the membership in the United Nations Kosovo would be universally recognized state so for the Serbian side, eventually it would mean recognition in, in terms of international law and the general acceptance, the statehood of Kosovo. So it would mean that Kosovo is lost for Serbia forever, according to international law. So this is a red line. And this is what um, Serbian politicians are saying these days. So we have red lines. We can talk. The dialogue is needed. We are for dialogue. We are against and the forcible solutions. We support the peace. But we have some red lines. And this is clear that for Serbia, it's, it's a very hard decision. And the recognition is not the option for Serbia. Direct or indirect, formal, informal, functional, sui generis, whatever we call this recognition is unacceptable because it would mean the loss of the territory which Serbia claims to be Serbian, part of the Serbian territory. And of course, Kosovo is, according to around 100 states today, Kosovo is a sovereign state. So Kosovo is recognized by a half of the international society. So this is a sovereign state from 2008, and we have different perception. So, of course, Kosovo expects something uh, which is clear from the Pristina's perspective, that we need mutual recognition. The idea of this final agreement is based on the mutual recognition. But this term, mutual recognition, is not put into the text of this French-German peace proposal. So it's also not easy for Prime Minister Kurti to accept this plan because he promised that he would sign only the agreement with the mutual recognition, which is based on, based on the mutual recognition, but actually opposition is talking to Kurti these days that he will probably sign something which is not that clear about this issue. So it's not also easy for Kosovo to sign this proposal, but I think it's much easier for Kosovo side to conclude the treaty and what we, we will see how it would end. We will see the dialogue because the international society is putting a pressure on the both sides to start serious and constructive discussion about this peace plan uh, or this French-German peace plan, which is actually European plan supported by Washington. So the barricades was removed because it was the expectation from the Brussels and Washington that the time is, is going and we expect from you to be constructive. So remove the blockade, stop this political games actually, and start serious discussion about the peace plan. The whole, well, let's say mess in Balkans is the fault of many centuries 
of foreign empires existing there. And ethnicities just mixed together and they didn't have their own territories because they were living under other state. So maybe it's a kind of a solution. Uh, I'm not saying about some super state because we've experienced it in the 20th century already, but maybe just accept all the Balkans into European Union and with common market, uh, without borders, they can just coexist peacefully. Oh, yeah, there are many, many uh, nations, many ethnic minorities in the Balkans and uh, the idea of national state is there as well actually the, this, this nationalistic drive actually led to the collapse of Yugoslavia so the idea that former Yugoslav republics would be the sovereign states it was the idea behind the, the whole dissolution process and so it's quite normal and obvious And but there is still a lot of nationalism from almost every side in the region and there are some ethnic minorities which are not very happy about the status they have maybe not the legal status, but factual status they have as a minority. So we mentioned Kosovo Serbs who are a minority in Kosovo, but from the Serbian perspective, Albanians are minority in, in Serbia. So, I mean, there are many different perspectives. And uh, of course, when we talk about legal and institutional structure or system in Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo, we see a lot of influences from the Western powers by actually imposed some legal solutions which seemed to be democratic at first but now they are perfect receipt for the continuation of the frozen conflict. I'm talking about ethnic divisions in Bosnia particularly, some guarantees which influence the organization of state institutions according to ethnic uh, lines. So this is kind of solution, democratic solution, when you have representatives from Croats, Bosniaks and Serbs, but it also it's a kind of element to free the conflict because everything is organized around ethnic structures. So a new uh, interesting trend is a kind of, uh, in Bosnia, it's a kind of a civilian movement. So people trying to organize, not necessarily according to ethnic lines, but according to some civilian attitudes. So maybe this is a kind of solution. But historically, yeah, of course, of course, I would agree that the European Union or membership of the Western Balkan countries in European Union would be the best cure, the best solution solution for the region, which would stop those um, secessionist movements, a kind of revisionism, nationalism uh, visible in the region, which is definitely a threat for the stability and security of the Balkan region, especially today. So when we see the war in uh, Ukraine, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, so the Balkans are actually uh, looking, and there are some people in the Balkans who expect Russia to be a winner, and maybe there were some expectations from some parts of the Balkan societies that the war in, in the Eastern Europe would influence the situation in the Balkans itself. I'm talking about right-wing groups, especially in Serbia, but also in Republika Serbska and Montenegro as well. Uh, so um, European Union is the solution for the Balkans, and uh, it can stop this the cycle of conflicts, eliminate those revisionist tendencies and attempts for secessions still visible in some parts of the region. And uh, of course, economic progress is, for the region is connected with European Union, not with China or Russia. I think everybody understands that. Uh, the progress of the region is connected with EU and Western Balkans 
It, it is a part of Europe. It's geographically much closer to Italy uh, or Germany or um, Visegrad countries than Russia, let's say, or China. So this is a part of Europe, historically, culturally, economically. This is a part of Europe which should be integrated. And also, and the benefits uh, for, for that process it's not only for the Balkan people, but also for the whole European Union, because it would end historical division of the European continent and connect Europe with other parts of the world. I'm talking about the Middle East, I'm talking about the Eastern Europe. So the Balkans are important, important puzzle for this European structure or construct. Actually, this enlargement process should be faster because it's also in our interest to have the Balkans on the European side. Because we see the growing China's influence, economic investments in the region, and we still see the Russians' attempts to complicate, to, to block some pro-European reforms, pro-European policy of the Western Balkan states. So Russia has no influence that much as maybe someone could see this. So Russia cannot cannot change the political situation in the region, but actually, unfortunately, Russia can block some positive reforms, some positive processes in places like Republic of Serbska and Bosnia-Herzegovina, which, of course, limits the foreign policy of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So the foreign influences in the region, which is also one of the characteristics of the Balkan itself, when we're talking about the foreign influences, we should be focused about what we need from that region. Do we want Balkans to be a part of European Union, or maybe we accept that th this would be the place for other great powers' uh, activity in Europe, because this is still historically, once again, politically and in un economically a part of Europe. I think the answer is simple for the European Union. And the Russian aggression on Ukraine actually let us in the EU to understand that the Balkans, it is an easy target for Russia, and we want speed up the enlargement process. We see some positive movements today. The, the dispute between Bulgaria and North Macedonia is limited by European diplomacy. It's still far from solution, but we see some positive uh, activity from European Union. You said Russian influence. We can see it especially in Serbia. Um, I remember being in Belgrade speaking to people. They were openly pro-Russian. Um, how does Russia influence Serbia? Well, some people even call Serbia some kind of Balkan Russia, uh, is it true? It's a very complex question. Of course, the majority of Serbs, they are, let's say, on the, on the Russian side, but this is a kind of symbolic love for Russia. It's based on history. It's based on kind of Russian soft power, which is attractive for Serbia. And uh, it's, it's based on some myths about Russia, of course. So in that way, I, I mentioned uh, many times that Serbia is an easy target for Russia because there is a lot of uh, pro-Russian propaganda in Serbian media. Actually, some of those media are supported by Russia itself. So, yeah, Serbia is, is, is a target. And this love for Russia is based on some idealistic picture of Russia and Putin uh, himself, which is far from uh, reality, but the Serbs believe in, in that uh, positive face of Russia. So, as a consequence, they are against of, uh, sanctions uh, against Russia. As a consequence, authorities in Belgrade were completely aware of the fact that they cannot join European Union's sanctions against Russia because it would 
never be understood or accepted by the pro-Russian Serbian society. So that's one kind of symbolic cultural connectivity. Even cooperation between uh, Serbian Orthodox Church and Russian Orthodox Church is the element which binds Serbia with Russia. And, and when you think about the economy, it's also this element which binds Serbia with Russia. I'm talking about the, the gas. Ser- Serbia is dependent on, on the Russian gas. Uh, circa 80% of the gas Serbia uses, is, this is the gas from Russia, and it means this factor is also important, and there are uh, investments in Serbian oil and gas sector from Russia, so it means this sector is to some extent under control from Moscow itself. It means that this is under control of Russian capital, so um, economic factor this is the next one. But I think this is a mistake to think that Serbian policy or foreign policy is pro-Russian. It's, it's more complex because the idea of Serbian policy is to be somewhere in the middle between the great powers. So there is the idea there are some four pillars of Serbian foreign policy, and this is European Union, United States, Russia, and China. And... Uh, Serbia is trying to balance, to keep the good relations between all those great powers. So we can call this a multi-vector policy. And although this pro-Russian vector is visible, and especially visible in the media and even visible in the, in the hearts and minds of Serbian people, it doesn't mean that this is the only one because government in Belgrade is pragmatic. One and they know that about 60% of Serbian trade is with the European Union. This is the trade with the European Union, not the trade with China or Russia. So the expectations for future economic development of the country is connected with the EU membership. So the European future is actually the only one real future for Serbia. And when you think about the development, when you think about the GDP, the rise of GDP, and also the social consequences of this economic development, American ambassador Christopher Hill said that EU membership, this is the only one realistic perspective for Serbia. But he was criticized by some Russian politicians that this is up to Serbia, which is True, this is up to Serbia to decide about uh, foreign policy and about the alliances in international relations. And it is true, but some people say that Serbia should be careful and this time decide what is really in the interest of country. So what is the Serbian interest and not a Russian one? Because this love for Russia, this expectations that Russia can help Serbia to resolve, let's say, Kosovo question, it's a false expectation. It's not based on the facts. I read the opinion that Serbia should decide on which side of the Berlin Wall should be these days, which is a metaphor, of course, because Serbia is a candidate for European Union and should be more focused on its European future, should uh, join the European sanctions against Russia. This is what was said, and not to stay on that side, which is uh, together, uh, which is something else, and together with Russia and China. So it was said by one European politicians, and of course this is a kind of opinion, but I think it's it's based on some real expectations from the Serbian society. To sum up, uh, Serbs love Russia, but they would live in European Union when you think about economic standard and also. And anything else. Actually, historically, they were connected with Europe more than with, with Russia. And we should remember that in Belgrade, 
there's a beautiful place in the in the center of Belgrade, which is called Kalemegdan, and this is old Turkish fortress there. And in in the middle of the fortress, this is the monument which commemorates the fact that Serbia, uh, that Serbian soldiers in, in Serbia was fighting together with the Allied forces during the First World War. So this is a kind of tragedy and for Serbia that uh, this country and this nation, uh, which was ally of Western states during the First World War and during the Second World War, now is perceived as a as a pro-Russian or uh, anti-European state because it's, in my opinion, it's not true. It's it's more complex. Serbs would say that Serbian foreign policy is Serbian. It's it's not based on the interests of anyone else. But the question occurs: How long Serbia can balance between the east and west? Because when we see Sweden and uh, uh, and Finland, which are changing their neutrality. Uh, so the question is, is it this neutral stance a good policy for Serbia? That's the question. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 